Hello and welcome to Critical Line Item. My name's Tom Radlick. Thank you for joining me for this podcast. Lord Nordcliffe once said, news is what somebody wants to suppress. All the rest is advertising. Australia's attention has been focused over the past couple of years on a couple of instances where governments have wanted to suppress particular news stories for reasons of their sensitivity. One of those is the ABC reportage of what was known as the Afghan files, reports about secret documents that revealed what Australian soldiers were up to during conflict in Afghanistan. The other story, which has a somewhat brighter ending for Annika Smithers from News Corporation, is a story related to her getting hold of a secret document published in the... Sunday Telegraph that related to uh, the Australian Security uh, Signals Directorate's uh, intention to broaden the capacity of uh, the way in which people are surveilled. There are several consequences to this. But but for the moment, Annika Smithhurst is now not facing charges for reporting the story. The AFP is not proceeding with it. Joining me today is Greg Barnes to talk through some of the issues related to the Smithhurst case. Thanks for joining me again, Greg. Thanks, Tom. Now, the AFP is no longer proceeding with charges in this matter. Does that surprise you? Well, not really. I mean, um, the AFP, in fact, has said that they're not going to bring any charges. Uh it was outrageous in the first place for the AFP to have raided Amicus Smithhurst and ABC journalists. Uh, and if they had laid charges, it would have been a very frightening day for Australian democracy because it would mean that uh, journalists who publish inconvenient truths uh, or information that governments want to suppress would be running the risk of prosecution and going to jail. This. There's a couple of things in the Smithers case that are worth highlighting, um, and that is law enforcement typically can't walk into someone's premises without a warrant. Is that that's correct, isn't it? Correct. I mean, uh, in this particular case, what happened was that the warrant was issued. It was flawed, the High Court found, um, but that was only the only basis on which it was set aside, and so it still leaves the issue and the precedent that's been set by the AFP of issuing, getting a warrant issued so that it can raid uh, the homes and offices of journalists. Then uh, there was information that the AFP got hold of from, from Annika Smithhurst's place uh, and the AFP was not asked to hand it back or destroy it even though the warrant as issued was not kosher. And how does that work? Well, I think one of the concerns about the current law is that the AFP can, in effect, uh, has seemed to have been able to continue to possess materials that it obtained on the basis of a warrant, which was unlawful. Uh, I mean, normally um, what happens is that uh, you can't, use the fruits of a poison tree, as it were, so that, uh, you know, information that you might have gathered in an unlawful exercise of power has to be returned to the individual. How would that sort of evidence, 
how that sort of evidence be viewed in court, Greg? Because it's taken, it's taken um, from an individual uh, using a warrant that is deemed to be effectively illegal. Um, how would that play in a court if that was ever to go to uh, go before a judge? Well, there'd be an argument about whether or not the evidence that's obtained unlawfully can be admitted in, uh, admitted, in other words, heard by the court. There is a provision in the law that says that sometimes what a court can do is weigh up what's called the probative value against the prejudicial effect. So, in other words, they say, well, this evidence is, is so compelling that we're going to allow it to be heard. Uh, courts have generally been pretty strict, though. When it comes to unlawful actions by police, they generally say, look, if you don't comply with the law, when it comes to uh, seizure, search and seizure, uh, then you're not going to be able to get evidence admitted because otherwise it's carte blanche for the police. They simply have to, they know that they don't have to fully comply with the law and that the court is likely to admit their evidence. They're the kinds of things that uh, I've had some interest in for some time uh, in terms of uh, the rules of evidence and how this thing, how these things can play out. Uh, in this case, we're, we're talking about a journalist, someone who's prominent. Um, how often do you see these kinds of fights over evidence obtained under warrant in the cases you deal with in any given year? You probably see them less now than you used to. Uh, police have become fairly good at uh, uh, making sure that their search warrants are in order. And so it's they're less, uh, I mean, you do see them, but you see less of these sorts of cases these days. That's interesting. I, I wasn't uh, I was aware of that. Now, in terms of the impact of raids like this on the general you know, environment, you know, in, a, in a situation where governments are simply uh, wanting to hide stuff, uh, how do you view how do you view the these kinds of actions? Because there's been a, a notion of a chilling effect that people continuously talk about in the area of uh, journalism, where their source people's sources may not talk um, to a journalist if there is a threat of them being detected, and the journalist has no protection under law. Well, you know, it's an essential component of democracy that we have whistleblowers and that we have a free media and that we're able to report on information um, and keep governments accountable. And if we're going to start to, as we have been doing in this country for the last 20 years, start to try and curtail that right, it's very dangerous. It means that you move away from being a democracy uh, into the realm of uh, and into the arms of more authoritarian regimes. Is there something, if I can be lateral here for a moment, Greg, uh, and to the, I beg your indulgence in this respect, but uh, how does that change the way in which, from, from where you sit as someone who's a legal practitioner who observed this through a particular lens, how does it change the way in which news gathering ought to be thought about by a journalist dealing with sensitive issues going forward? Well, I think, you know, journalists are going to act without fear or favour, as they should, and I think that in, 
in, in effect, they've had a win in this particular case, but um, I think that journalists will stand up against what they see, rightly so, as very repressive and oppressive and bullying conduct on the part of government and the AFP. Well, there is, there is another approach to all this, isn't there? I mean, if, you're, um, if you've got your hands on something, you can de-identify everything you can not publish photographs of something you can you can run the you can run the story without indicators that it's come that you've got something physical yeah. can you not well look you can uh but of course um and one always has to be sensible here uh to make sure that you comply with the law for example if there are court proceedings or you don't want to defame a person obviously but it is important that information uh, even if it's sensitive, as we've seen, for example, with the allegations of war crimes in Afghanistan, even if it's sensitive, that information needs to be um, in the hands of the public uh, so that uh, we can make a judgment about it and people can be held accountable. What are the areas of law reform that you think ought to be considered uh, at the moment, given, given the outcome of the Smithers case, well, there needs, uh, to be, there, there needs to be a right to freedom of speech enshrined in the Constitution along with the broad Human Rights Act. That would be the first step to take. The second step to take would be to have a very good look at the way in which since 9-11 we have passed uh, a number of pieces of legislation which have impinged upon the right to, of, of the media to report and also which has ab ab uh, failed to protect uh, whistleblowers. And uh, we need to have a very good look at those laws and we need to reverse some of them and we need finally to have proper, um, con proper uh, uh, provisions in the law so that whistleblowers are protected. Uh, in terms of whistleblower protection, as you're aware, uh, I wrote a book on, on the Banking Royal Commission and there were, there were various consequences for whistleblowers who were discovered. Uh, typically, they're... they're kicked out of the jobs they've had if they've spoken out on practices that are um, poor uh, and not in the interests of consumers. Where do you think whistleblower laws ought to be strengthened at, at this time? Well, there ought to be immunity given to whistleblowers uh, so that they don't run the risk of uh, prosecution. Uh, there ought to be... We ought to um, remove the current requirement, as I understand it in the federal law, where you have to report a matter internally first before you become a whistleblower. In some cases, that's just impossible to do. Um, and we need to make sure that whistleblowers are also protected by the freedom of speech um, protections that uh, one would hope one day we see in our constitution. Uh, are you in the Australian Lawyers Alliance uh, looking at writing to the government more extensively now in relation to freedom of speech after the Smithhurst case? Well, we've been certainly campaigning on a Human Rights Act for Australia for a long, long time, along with other lawyers' organisations, and um, we'll certainly continue that. And I think the Smithhurst case highlights the dangers of not having such protections in our law. Okay, Greg, it's a great point at which to end our chat today. Thank you for making your time, time again. Thanks, Tom. Uh, thank you so much.